Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're going to do some cool stuff today. Alina, who have you got on? We have got on today. Ben Hodges, who is currently a PhD student at the University of Northampton. He's working on British Army intelligence during the interwar period. He himself has had a very diverse career working on intelligence and security. So today, we're going to be speaking more about intelligence in the interwar period and the start of, guess what, the Second World War. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the introduction. Oh, I'm really looking forward to this. So tell us, yeah, tell us about the interwar period and the 10-year rule. What is it and how does intelligence fit into it? Well, uh, the, obviously the interwar period is, is, a, is a period of time between the two world wars mm. um, and is a period of time where uh, a lot of the sort of thinking at the time was that um, we wouldn't want another war and we would do all we could to try and avoid it. So in 1919, um, uh, somebody called Winston Churchill, who you may have heard of, and granddad proposed the idea that um that there would be no major war uh, involving the british army um for 10 years and then in 19 in 1932 i think it was um that's when they finally realized that they might have got it a bit wrong so uh, what it meant was that uh, all the sort of planning assumptions uh for budgets for equipment for uh, anything in like that was all based on the idea that they wouldn't have to fight a major war. They accepted that they still had their various um, commitments around the empire and, and places like that, but um, they wouldn't have to go to, to the continent to fight a big, a big war. Obviously, we now know that that was um, somewhat flawed. Um, but the result of that, for, for intelligence purposes, was that um, intelligence was very much starved of funds. Um, I mean, uh, Douglas Haig, again, you may have heard of, um, he, he said that intelligence was fine, but it was something that w- was really only useful during wartime, and there really wasn't a role for intelligence uh, during peacetime. Um, to that end, every year uh, during the interwar period, um, the British Army would publish its, uh, its sort of army estimates to say how much it was going to spend on stuff. Uh, and I discovered that uh, the, the princely fee of £100 per annum was to be spent on field intelligence, which, which in itself sounds pathetic, which it probably was. Um, however, when I dug a little further, I discovered that this wasn't even being spent. It was just a notional fee uh, being put into the accounts to say, we've considered that we might need to spend some money on intelligence. However, this will only be spent on, on intelligence during, during war, wartime. It's not necessarily a peacetime thing. Intelligence doctrine... It sounds so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what it is. Just um, say what you really feel, Alina. <laughs> they, do, they do say honesty is the best policy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does sound boring, and for a lot of people it is. Um, so doctrine is essentially uh, the sort of how-to guide. So uh, militaries produce doctrine which, which explains how uh, they do certain tasks, and there are doctrines for literally every single task that you could imagine that the, that the army would, would, um, would, would commit to. So for intelligence purposes, um, 
the the main sort of publication during that time was the Manual of, of Military Intelligence in the Field, which was which was published in 1922. Now, this incorporated a lot of the lessons that had been learned from uh, from the First World War, um, and this this was then revised several times during the during this period. Uh, but ultimately, it is it is a how-to guide. It explains how how people go about doing the job of intelligence, um, which is something that you know it's, it, that a lot of people have struggled with over the years. Uh, looking at the way the British Army operates, um, there's been a sort of sense that the British Army has been loath to fully embrace doctrine. Uh, the sort of the stereotypical view is that the Germans were all very uh, much into um, you know staff work and it all being ruthlessly efficient and everything being planned to the nth degree. Whereas the British tended to have a bit more of a, a lackadaisical approach to, to following uh, guidelines like, like, uh, like doctrine. What kind of people do they recruit for intelligence in this period? Um, well, a lot of this period was, was spent looking at um, the idea that they might need somebody in the future, but we wouldn't necessarily need someone now. So, the British Army created a, a sort of reserve, um, regular army reserve of officers. Um, within that, they split it down into different sections. So there was an intelligence section. And what they tried to do was they tried to uh, sort of encapsulate all the experience of the First World War by uh, encouraging uh, former intelligence officers to, to join this list um, during, during the period. Now, the problem with this was that um, a lot of people obviously were getting on a bit. And indeed, in the First World War, a lot of the intelligence officers were older than your average soldier. Um, so consequently, as the, as the period went on, people tended to drop off the list because they just became too old, too old to serve anymore. Um, so good idea in theory. In reality, I don't think it actually produced that many, that many officers. Um, but in terms of the sort of people they recruited... Um, there were sort of two or three things they really went for. So they were massively into language skills. So people who spoke fluent French or German, particularly welcome, other, other more sort of exotic languages too. And because of that, and again, it's, it's actually mentioned in the, in the manual, uh, the, the sort of people they're looking for are, are to people like teachers, people who have got have had clerical jobs, because obviously the importance of, of good orderly uh, clerical work is, is, is sacrosanct to, to intelligence. Um, journalists quite a few journalists ended up in there uh, and then as as time went on they became a little bit more concerned about the the prospect of war they then created a thing called the army officer emergency reserve which was essentially uh, a pool of people who put their hands up and said do you know what if there's a war i'm quite happy to be to be mobilized and to do my bit they weren't paid they were provided with no uniform it was literally just a just a list of, of people that were that were good chaps that's mad. <laughs> I love it. Can you imagine now? Everyone would be like, "Well, what can I bill you for?" <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's strange, really. I mean, one one of the criticisms at the time was that people said, "Well, do you know what? A, a decent person should do this anyway." There was a sense that 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 sense of duty should have been ingrained in all of us. Hmm. So why why do we actually need to have this list? Um, but nonetheless, it did actually produce. Uh, some interesting characters that um, would eventually go on to, to serve in, in the Second World War. So how did they find these people? Um, there was a, a branch within the war office that uh, called MI1X, which was responsible for, for creating, effectively creating a list of this, of these sort of people. Now, they relied heavily on networking and patronage. You know, there was a lot of, lot of sort of um, 
you know, go, going to certain clubs and, and knowing the right people. And I knew, I knew a chap who did this or I knew a chap who, who served in the last war. Um, so very, very ad, ad hoc informal networks. Um, one of the sort of major networks that sort of produced a lot of good work was, um, was the friendship between uh, Vernon Kell, who was the, the head of MI5, uh, and an intelligence staff officer called Kenneth Strong, who, who would eventually end up being Eisenhower's uh, chief, chief intelligence officer, they realised that there was a requirement for intelligence and security staff uh, in the event of war. So um, in the late 30s, they got together and they said, right, we need to come up with an idea of training some people. Now, at the time, there was no intelligence corps depot or anything like that. So it was all done under the auspices of the, of the Corps of Military Police. Um, but again, in typical... Um, fashion you know Kenneth Strong said oh yeah I know this guy uh, I, I worked with him in Germany he speaks French and German he's a good guy uh, a guy called Frank Davis unfortunately Frank Davis actually left the army and retired um, so they managed to convince him to come back initially he wasn't even paid at all then he was paid as a sort of con- sort of con- contractor and eventually about a year or so after he'd set up the the field security wing uh, they managed to sort of um, get him in through the back door and he was recommissioned as, as a major um, and he'd subsequently ended up as lieutenant colonel and, and was the sort of first uh, commandant of the new newly formed intelligence corps. The other side of it that was that was quite successful was was this this list that was created by um, by uh, by lieutenant colonel Gerald Templer, who was later a field marshal. Um, he literally sat down with his with his clerk and 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 drew up lists of the right sort of people and then, you know, contacted them and, and, and invited them to, to, to come and do training and, and to, and to do uh, intelligence work. Are there women? Uh, again, there were, but they were, they were, they were in your stereotypical clerical roles. Um, and one of the, one of the women who, who worked as a clerk uh, within the war office, who was, was working with Gerald Templer on the, uh, on the list was a, a lady called Joan Bright Astley who wrote uh, uh, an autobiography in the, in the, in the 70s talking about her, her experiences at the war office. And it, it, it does seem extremely stereotypical that these are the, the sort of the, the bright young girls who can do typing and, um, you know, talk the talk and look the part. Um, but she was involved in, in setting up, helping set up uh, the intelligence training um, courses that, that occurred, um, which, again, were all very ad hoc. Uh, run through the auspices of the Royal United Services Institute in London. Um, but then weirdly, um, people had to actually pay for their place on the course. So, you know, you get selected to, to be an intelligence officer and then they turn around and say, yeah, but that's going to cost you to do that training course. Mm. Alex, I don't think you and I would be um, very welcome at this point. No, probably not. Well, I you speak say- Polish. You do speak, and you also, you also ride a motorbike, Lena. And motorbikes were the big thing. There was there was this absolute obsession with motorcycles and intelligence work because I think the idea was that they expect people to be careering all over the battlefield, um, pass, passing on messages to to different sort of formation commanders. I reckon I'd be in an office like French can read Russian, bit of Italian, bit of Spanish, learning Arabic. I, th- I think I think they'd snap your hand off. You reckon? Yeah, you're well in there. Oh, my only problem is I'd have to like, you know, if they're giving you source material and stuff, if people talk too fast with most of them, I'd be screwed. As long <laughs> as I can slow the tapes down to interpret, I'm fine. Or if it's reading the stuff, I'm fine. 
<laughs> I'm happy being on that battlefield on that motorbike. That kind oh, of sounds God. fun. God help the battlefield is all I can say. <laughs> but you, you can always sit on the back. I mean, our cartoon's a little bit wrong with you sitting on the front and me on the back. You're never going to get over that, are you? No, I'm never going to get over that. I'm really sorry, Steve. I can't get over it. That's why I've told him not to change it, just because I know it winds you up. But <laughs> seriously, though, the way you've been explaining this to us, um, yeah. it's a bit i want to use the word clusterfuck it's a mess isn't it there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of doctrine if you like about how to set this out and how to make it work as an effective machine or am i interpreting it wrong what kind of blunders are made um no i think you've you've pretty much nailed it there um it's 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 one of those situations where they had they had a a sort of grand plan which would be the, the doctrine um but then no one really actually had the the um the impetus to actually follow it, follow through with it. Um, you know, ev- everything was, was based around budgetary decisions. Um, and there was this general consensus and general thought that, that intelligence work was only became important when there was actually a war on. Um, for example, there were two, two large um, British army exercises that took place in this period. So one was in 1925 and the other was in 1935. And only in the 1935 exercise did they actually bother to um, exercise any of the intelligence staff. Um, there was no intelligence input at all into the 1925 exercise. Um, and obviously with this obsession of motorbikes I was talking about as well, um, you know, the other thing that happened was lots of intelligence personnel had motorbike accidents. Uh, and in fact, if you go to, if you go to the military intelligence museums, so here's my opportunity to plug the, uh, the, the museum, Please uh, do. which is currently shut for COVID, but that's the kind of the story of everyone's life at the moment. Mm. Um, but if you go there, they actually have a, a, a second world war motorcycle and a, and a display uh, dedicated to, to all the intelligence school soldiers who were, were killed in, in road traffic accidents. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So Germany now invades Poland. For those who need to know the date, that's the 1st of September, 1939. France then falls. For those who need to know, that's at some point in June, 1940. What happens then? Well, amazingly, despite the ad hoc nature of, uh, of the intelligence work leading up to the war and the, the, the work of the British Expedition Force in France... Um, by a miracle, they managed to actually put a number of intelligence core sections into the British Expeditionary Force under the auspices of uh, a thing called the Field Security Police, which was uh, run by the Corps Military Police because there wasn't actually an intelligence corps at that stage. Now, they performed reasonably well considering the overall performance of the British Expeditionary Force um, and, and the collapse of, of sort of command and control towards the end. 
But when they all evacuated Dunkirk from Dunkirk and, and the dust settled, um, there was a decision that intelligence would expand rapidly because there was a war on. Someone had finally noticed that there was that we were actually fighting a war. Um, so to that end, uh, in July 1940, uh, the decision was made to form an, an intelligence corps. The intelligence corps we know and love today. Um, this year, of course, celebrates its 80th anniversary. So there were lots of great plans for lots of core-related activity for the 80th, but unfortunately, COVID has, uh, has kind of ruined all that. So on the 19th of July, 1940, Army Order 112 uh, created the Intelligence Corps. And this really represented the start of a, of a sort of professionalisation of intelligence. Uh, a lot of people said before that, you know, this was about a spirit of corps, but from my, my research, it's mainly due to administration. That they realised that, Vast numbers of intelligence officers, intelligence NCOs in sections all throughout the army needed some sort of central hub in which to um, operate, to be paid, to be um, trained. Uh, and, and that sort of was the main driving force behind it getting its own cat badge and all, all the stuff that goes with being a, a proper formed unit. I know you get a little annoyed sometimes with certain terminologies when it comes down to intelligence. So let's straighten out a few of these. First of all, is a spy an intelligence officer? <laughs> <laughs> He's laughing as if to say, <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm not laughing. I'm laughing, but this is just, this comes up all the time. So mm. I think we'll, we'll try and do a little bit of definitional work here. Mm-hmm. So, intelligence officers are members of intelligence services or they are appointments within the army. Um, the difference between an intelligence officer and, say, a spy. Uh, is that a spy could be an intelligence officer if, it, if, if they are operating against their own country, or they could just be a, another member of the armed forces or a member of the government who is uh, collecting intelligence against their own, their own people. Then just to muddy the water fur- waters further, you also have agents. Now, in the UK, an agent is, is, is somebody who is, is, is a, a paid informant. Um, they may be paid to spy on somebody or something. Um, but in the US, an agent is also uh, an actual full-time employee of an intelligence agency. Um, so it, it does get very confusing. The popular press always likes to refer to anybody in sort of uh, senior intelligence positions in, in government as, you know, UK top spy says and that sort of thing. But um, ultimately, intelligence officers are employees. Um, spies are Kind of not. <laughs> That's a, yeah. That is a really shit explanation. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Don't worry. Oh, it's okay to admit that it's a nightmare. <laughs> it don't, listen, and we've, a got all our own, we've got our own nightmares and minefields all the time. <laughs> so, because <clears throat> we went through a couple of these, actually, because I just thought I'd annoy you just for fun. Yeah, well, um, she does so, it so well. <laughs> I, do, I do. I do do it so well. Right. Okay. Are you ready for this one? I'm just going to read a statement. Apparently, there was no intelligence between 1918 and 1940. And go. Oh, God. (laughs) This is like the sort of popular historiography of the Intelligence Corps. The idea that the Intelligence Corps was disbanded at the end of the First World War and then reformed in 1940, and that between that period of time, the Army did no intelligence whatsoever because it didn't have an Intelligence Corps, which is absolute bollocks. (laughs) Because... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they, say it Ben say it say how it. you mean it just <laughs> let it out it's still an intelligence function it's the army still required intelligence it just didn't have a, a separate core providing personnel 
Um, and also, the intelligence school wasn't disbanded in 1918, despite what, uh, at one point, the own British Army's website said. Uh, it kind of it kind of withered on the vine and, and, and sort of died in about 1929, um, having got smaller and smaller and smaller. I think the last the last sort of section to leave uh, occupied Germany uh, was sort of you know a couple of officers, a couple of clerks, and you know maybe a dog and a, and a bike. Yeah, I was going to say there'd be a dog definitely oh. that they'd adopted from somewhere, and probably a motorbike as well. Yeah, we're loving our motorbike. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> oh, here's another one for you. <clears throat> I'm going to say something really witty and funny now that I bet you've never heard. Military intelligence is an oxymoron. Oh yeah, no <laughs> I actually I, I looked into this, and the, uh, the the origin of this of this saying is is actually attributed to Groucho Marx. However. I also discovered from doing a bit more digging that apparently um, Charters, who was who was Haig's intelligence officer in the First World War, um, quite controversial. That is a little bit of an oxymoron, but yeah, let's carry <laughs> on. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he apparently when he was talking about um, uh, talking to Lord Curzon about intelligence work, he, he was quoted as saying, "I fancy military intelligence to him is a contradiction in terms." Yeah, but that's Curzon. <laughs> I mean, God, he wasn't exactly uncontroversial himself, was he? No, I mean, if you're talking about two controversial figures talking about something yeah. slightly controversial, it's, it's going to go that way, isn't it? Just a little bit. We won't we won't make you dwell on that one anymore because it is silly. Right. So <clears throat> this is the one that I kind of thought would be fun because, haha, <laughs> let's throw this into the mix. And I know, I know what's going to come out of Alex's mouth in just a oh, minute. So let, yeah. me, let, me, let me read this first. And then, Alex, you can, you can go full on. Right. If you could go for a martini, a martini, darling, with any spy or intelligence officer, who would it be and why? Can I just tell you now, right, the whole James Bond martini thing is a crock of shit. As someone who was a cocktail bartender for many, many, many years, you know when he stands there all poncy and goes, shaken, not stirred. Do you know the difference, right? You shake a martini, you water it down. You stir it, you don't. So basically, he's ordering a weak fucking martini and being snotty about it. That's right, Martin. You just ruined, you ruined Bond for me now. Oh, mate, this is why. Do you know what? That's basically the reason I've never sat through a Bond film. Because I'm like, you're snooty and you shouldn't be. Yeah, he's ordering a weakened martini. If he was bad ass, he'd ask stirred, not shaken. Sorry, I've just ruined that for you, haven't I? Yeah, I'm never going to watch <laughs> Just silence. Anyway, if you were going to have a decent martini with a spy or intelligence officer, who would it be and why? Um, this will make several people who know me laugh quite a lot, actually, um, because the person I'd go for is someone who um, was active during the interwar period um, and during the Second World War, but whose treachery was not discovered until well after the war. Uh-oh. That's Guy uh, uh, I thought it might be one of them. Now, I, what I find fascinating about Guy Burgess is he is the most inappropriate person to hold any sort of security clearance or be involved <laughs> in any sort of sensitive work whatsoever. He is a predatory homosexual alcoholic. I mean, every alarm bell that should possibly ring about this guy's personality. At should, the time, definitely. Could have prevented him from, from ever working in intelligence. However... You know, the chap went to Eton so and Cambridge. So, I mean, he's obviously a good chap. That's all that matters. Sounds like Boris Johnson's government, doesn't it? <laughs> Wait, hold on a minute. Just because he went to Eton? 
Yeah, that's pretty much how, how, how security betting worked in those days. If, yeah. if you were the right sort of chap and you went to the right school and went to the right university and you had the right references, then that was pretty much okay. Is it not how it works for A-level results this year as well? Which make them up, don't they? Yeah. Obviously, we're not, we're not saying that there's anything untrustworthy about homosexuals, are we? But we're saying at the time that would have been, that would have been an alarm bell, wouldn't it? And, Absolutely. It, yeah. It, 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 it should, you know, the fact that it was illegal meant that he was already having to live a double life. Although yeah. the Guy Burgess was such an interesting character in the sense that he was so openly gay in a time when it was really not a good idea to be openly gay. Yeah, and then you would have think that would have made them, like, not in in the way that they thought would have made them not want to have him in a position, as you say, of intelligence with security clearance. Yeah, but uh, but I'd definitely go for a drink with him. I mean, you, you know, it'd be a good laugh because he's an alcoholic, so we'll, you definitely get the rounds in. Yeah, definitely. Alina, Alex, what about you? I was going to jump in there and say, Alex, what about you? Well, I'm going World War One, and I'm going for Walter George Fletcher, who uh, he so he was he was an Etonian. He was a a teacher there by the time the war broke out, and he's in my Eton book, and I adore him. And uh, he ran away from school, and these three poor teachers, language masters, so he taught French and German, got given these really stupid, not trustworthy motorcycles, told they were in the intelligence corps, got shipped over to France before literally anyone, and basically spent the retreat bumbling around um, on a motorbike. At one point, he rode his motorbike into a crowd of German officers, um, and basically they realised he was about to be corked to in a, in a British uniform and then just shouted at them in German and rode away before they could figure out what was going on. Um, he was brilliant and lovely, and he was killed in 15 march 15 and he's in the front row of the cemetery at bois grenier but i'd love to have a drink with him because he uh when he was drunk he used to sing german opera and he was mad so yeah i named my cat after him i named two cats one after him and one after his brother so yeah that's like pretty personal for me that's who i choose i'd ask him because his letters home when he says about being in the intelligence corps he's just is like i don't even know what the intelligence corps is at this point in 1914 i don't know what i'm a part of so in the end he just attaches himself to the 19th brigade which was like operating separately from a division and just says oh fuck it, i'm just staying here i don't have a clue what's going on at this point <laughs> No, that's, that, that, that's that's common with a lot of people's experience in the first world war with the intelligence corps. You know, people really di- didn't really understand what it was all about, and you know, just the, the sort of the, the temporary gentlemen who found their way into into the corps um, in nineteen fourteen really knew nothing about soldiering whatsoever. And again, a lot of the stories revolve around falling off motorbikes. And what and I think two, two of the questions that were asked uh, of soldiers of officers uh, joining in 1914 was can you ride a motorbike and can you ride a horse the brilliant thing is he desperately desperately wanted a horse and so everywhere he goes in france and belgium he's trying to cadge a horse so he can get rid of the motorbike and nobody's having it he has this romantic view of himself riding across france and belgium on a bloody horse and he gets given this motorbike which he basically just ends up kicking and swearing at a lot you know, the other really odd thing as well, Alex, is that um, I named my cat after Guy Burgess. Did you? Oh, yeah. I, have, I have George and Reggie, so his brother. This is what else is brilliant, is George gets put out there so quickly. He has a younger brother who's basically looks like a 1920s film star, is stunning, um, and has a personality of Blackadder, who was already in the artillery section of the Oxford OTC and was wanting to get out really quickly. And George ended up there with no experience while being in the Eaton OTC um, and a heart condition ends up there before him, which is quite funny because his brother didn't really see the funny side of it. But yeah. You should all name your cats after historical figures. And my current cat is Bertie, who is named after George the Sixth. 
My dog is named after a historical character. Nero. Emperor Nero. Not What's that it has te- anything to do with this, but... What, who's Teddy named after then? Oh, well, Teddy wasn't, but uh, I do theoretically have a third dog, and he's called Titus. <laughs> Random be naming them after I'm, Roman I'm, I'm figures. Probably, I'm probably petless, so I can't really join in at the moment, because um, oh. Burgess is long gone. Oh, that's sad. Alina, spy, who would you sit with? Or intelligence well, officer, because they're not the same thing. Because they're not the same thing. Like so... We've already had a podcast about who I really would like to sit with, and that's Christina Skarbek, because she's oh, yeah. awesome. But when I don't want to talk about her, because we've we've had a whole podcast on her, and she's awesome. Um, but instead, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a, a code name, and let's see if you all probably Ben knows who it is. But if I say to you tricycle, who is it? I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> ben, just going to admit it. No, because you can make me look stupid now. I, I know, I know, I know the the uh, code name, but I can't remember the story. Dusko Popov. Yes, we talked about this. Yes. Yeah. So actually, I would have a, a drink with him because he's one of um, Ian Fleming's kind of inspirations, funny enough, for um, James Bond. But no, no, that's not the reason why I'd have a drink with him because he's kind of. I mean, we had this discussion earlier that like all intelligence officers and spies were womanizers. Um, but I think he kind of takes the number one position for all of this. Oh, do you know what? You've just made me think I would Aubrey Herbert as well, who was supposedly the um, inspiration for Green Mantle, Buckland. So he was blind, practically blind, uh, bugger all military experience um, and got to World War One at the beginning by just going to an outfitter's, buying an Irish Guards uniform and marching out and hoping no one noticed that he was with them. He did get a horse, not a motorbike, but um, he ended up... So first of all, he was with... Um, the Irish Guards, then he was wounded, then he was in Cairo. Uh, he went with T. Lawrence to try and negotiate the surrender of Kut. Uh, he also landed with the New Zealand division on um, at Gallipoli. Uh, he's just everywhere and hilarious and brilliant and takes the mickey out of everyone and I think he would be great to have a drink. Yeah, I think the, the thing that, that sort of comes out to me from doing all this research is that intelligence tends to attract uh, slightly eccentric characters. Um, which again will make anyone who knows me laugh because I I some do kind of fit that car- that sort of um, category sometimes. But um, I've I, I've I've come across some some fascinating people and and with some really diverse experience as well. I mean, there was one guy whose name escapes me right now, which is typical when I'm talking to you. But he you know he'd served in in um, in sort of Swaziland. Um, before the First World War, and and then and then he found his way into the intelligence corps in the First World War, and then during the interwar period, he, he spent a bit of time with MI6 and spent a lot, a little bit of time working with the Foreign Office, and then working in business and just you know traveling all around the world doing odd jobs. Um, you know, by by the end of the Second World War, because he got recalled again to for service, you know, he was a sort of still serving as a 68 year old Lieutenant Colonel in the intelligence corps. You know, oh, brilliant! Photograph of him. I mean, he looks absolutely ancient, but he's just had so much random experience. Um, That's awesome. I'd look, obviously you'd want to sit down with T. Lawrence as well and find out about all that nonsense about swimming the Gulf of Aqaba and stuff like that, and to what extent he was actually doing intelligence work before the war as well. I'd love to get that out of him. You'd also have to talk to him about motorbikes as well, and just maybe suggest that he perhaps doesn't ride. Yet. Slows around going around corners. Yeah. Sorry, is that a bit disrespectful? <laughs> no. um, yeah, he was a bit no, but he was killed in a motorcycle accident, Alina. See, yeah. motorcycles and military intelligence—they go hand in hand, but they're also really dangerous. 
they are very dangerous. They're still very dangerous. Oh, don't ask, talk to Alina about people that ride around in their shorts and T-shirts. She gets really angry. Yeah, well, even, well. Do you know what even worse? Do you want to know what's even worse about that? When you have a guy who's fully kitted out, leather, helmet, gloves, everything, and he's got his little dolly on the back in a little dress with her legs bare, her arms bare, barely a proper helmet on. I, just, I, can't, I can't look at it. It's because you, you read that horror story of that woman in L.A., didn't you who fell off and got dragged yeah yeah, yeah. There we anyway go. be safe on motorbikes people even if you are an intelligence officer especially if you're an intelligence officer i'd say because they seem to, they seem to do have a lot of accidents or a spy yeah which could be the same thing an agent which may or may not be the same thing see <laughs> i've learned stuff today hopefully other people have too brilliant thank you so much for coming and talking to us all about this ben it's been brilliant Thank you. It's uh, it's been it's been an honour to, uh, to 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 join you too. And um, yeah, so it's, thanks for everything you've done over the last few months of lockdown and all that other crap because it's been hard work. Yeah, I think lockdown may be coming <laughs> again. Hence why we were doing thirty recordings this week, just in case. But yeah, no, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. And join us on Monday when Andy Chatterton will be with us to talk all about resistance in Britain in World War Two. I thought he was a loon when he first contacted us, but actually what he's talking about is the rather advanced planning that went on about what to do in the event that the Nazis actually made landfall and Operation Sea Line was successful. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 